Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, welcome once again. This is episode number 275 of the Critical Q&As. <laughs> so um, as I am uh, you know, usually like to say during these anniversary-type episodes, every 25, 50, 100 episodes, um, you know, never imagined I'd be I'd be still uh, answering your questions and having such a good time doing so. So thank you very much for being part of the audience and supporters of this channel out there. All right, um, a lot of interesting, fun things happening these days, despite a lot of the stuff and nonsense that's going on in our crazy, whacked up world. We've got uh, Leah and Mike now podcasting on uh, iHeartRadio. Our Starry Spotify, and also I wanted to tell you guys my podcast is now officially available on iHeartRadio and on Spotify. That's why it was on my mind. Um, but uh, and uh, the reporting come out off of uh, Tony Ortega's blog about Scientology. Still really good stuff. Definitely calling out some um, some people or uh, classes or or tiers of people, I guess you could say, who have been enabling Scientology, helping it out. Um, the Karen Bass story, for example, recently, for those of you who have been following that, she was a uh, congressperson um, who endorsed Scientology and then when called out on it, didn't walk it back or sort of just barely walked it back, but really didn't make it clear that she uh, was not okay with the church. And in fact, it turns out it looks like she might have a little bit of a relationship with the church, although it's not thought that she is herself a Scientologist. There are plenty of politicians and elected officials and civic leaders out there who get folded into Scientology's PR world um, through the process of safe pointing, which we've talked about on this show before, and it's and you know if it didn't work they wouldn't do it you know what I mean kind of thing when it comes to you know uh, to getting people on their side or allied with them or you know saying at least saying the things that Scientology wants them to say so that's just an ongoing process that Scientology and every group out there uh, engages in we protest or have a problem with what Scientology is doing of course because they are deceptive and they lie. Uh, a lot. So, all right. Anyway, let's go ahead and get on with the show this week. We've got some great questions that I'm looking forward to answering. So let's get to it. James Hacker, do you think that Hubbard knew about the damage and misery Scientology could slash would cause? And if so, would he have cared? Great question, James. And of course, my my go-to answer here is uh, is no. I don't think Hubbard really would have cared, and nor I don't think that he did, uh, as evidenced by the actions he took during his years, during his life, um, to repair, make up for, you know, somehow uh, show that he cared, indicate that he cared in some fashion. And I know that there are people who knew L. Ron Hubbard who are still alive who speak uh, apologetically about him, or at least you know, somewhat favorably try to push back against some of the uh, claims or, you know, um, uh, abusive claims, I guess you could say, or or disinformation about him. And of course, there is plenty of that too. But the information we have that is verified and true is damning enough that we don't really need to get into the hyperbole about it. Um, L. Ron Hubbard was a complicated man, uh, like I think most people are. Um, but but particularly, he had a lot of interesting things going on in his head. He, um, you know, he was just sort of this con man. And I guess what I'd like to say about this and answering this question or what was on my mind and taking this up was pointing out that there are people out there who... Okay, the, the labels, right? We use these labels or we talk about these labels, narcissist, malignant narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, pathological liar, you know, all these various things to describe different modes of behavior, different ways that people act toward others or consider other people or make their way through the world. I think we still got a lot of work to do on this 
classification systems, the, the labels that we use to describe behavior and why people behave the way they do. It's been thought for decades, centuries, that, you know, if a person was acting in an antisocial way, it was all them. It was somehow something wrong in their mind or their brain or their anatomy or their spirit that was messed up, that was abnormal. Uh, the study of this was first known as abnormal psychology, if I remember right, um, as though we have some kind of a definition of normal, as though we understand what the average human being is supposed to look like. We have no clue. I mean, what is this? How does that even, you know, not no clue, but, you know, certainly somebody, uh, you know, throwing their food or worse all over the walls or or trying to hurt themselves and that sort of thing. We kind of frown on that behavior. We say, hey, you know, let's 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 can rein that in a little bit and see if we can't help the person to live a little bit differently, a little bit more like the rest of us live. So sure, we can certainly point to certain kinds of behavior and go, well, that's off. But I think that there is something to intent. There is something to how people navigate the world in terms of what they're trying to do or what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and I think that there are, you know, we always, I always throw this around, there's a certain percentage of people, right, um, who navigate the world as though they are hunters or they are, uh, or the rest of the world maybe is considered their prey, you know, their potential victims, the people that they can and should take advantage of is how these this certain percentage of people seem to navigate the world. And Hubbard was one of those people. Hubbard looked at other people as things to control, as things to uh, have his way with, as um, things to take advantage of. Those are ha that's how he saw other people. And I, I, I believe that there were times when he had true affinity for or liking or, you know, I, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say love. I don't know that L. Ron Hubbard was capable of what you and I would think of as love. Unless, of course, we're talking about self-love. He certainly was enamored with himself and with his infallibility and with his greatness and with his talent and ability, and he presented himself that way to anybody who would listen. And there were certain things he could do that he did have some degree of talent with. He could sit and write complete stories, which is a talent. Now, whether the stories were any good or not is another level of talent, and Hubbard's talent when it came to writing coherent, you know, good stories, well, that's that's a subjective matter of opinion. My opinion, it happens to be that he wasn't very good at that. But the fact that he could just sit down and bang out a story is itself an ability. Um, and I think that, in fact, it helped his ability to, as a pathological liar, because he had quite the imagination and he was happy to use it to, uh, you know, so like I said, sort of control or... Uh, take advantage of other people. And I think that his actions through his life, when you look at what he did, how he went about doing it, you see a person who, you know, was sort of of the of the mindset of, uh, I bet I would rather ask for forgiveness than try to get permission first. You know, he was one of those kind of people, and he did not count the cost in broken lives, ruined finances, uh, messed up relationships, in with his past relationships, with the way that he would use people and abuse them, um, both physically, sexually, psychologically. He was a well-rounded abuser, he, a, and he was a serial uh, philanderer and many other things. And we can point to those things as markers of character, and we can say this is a man who clearly, through his actions, demonstrated that he did not care for other people at the same level that he cared for himself and his own interests. And he always put himself first and everybody else second. So when you look at somebody like that and a continuing pattern of behavior throughout his life of deception, of, of lying, etc., then 
you see somebody who doesn't care about other people. Because when we talk about what it means to care about other people or care about the consequences of your actions in regards to those people, then we're talking about somebody who can empathize, who can have compassion, who can put themselves in somebody else's shoes and realize that the, that the harm that they are causing this other person wouldn't feel good if they were receiving it. So therefore, you know, they maybe they shouldn't do that. That's a that's a it's an interesting little complicated, you know, logic train that you have that you follow that that most of us learn at age four or five as we start growing out of um, our self-centered, egotistical, fully self-centered worldview. Uh, there's a thing called theory of mind, which discusses the idea that's a, it's a theory, right? It's an idea that that children up until somewhere between the ages of three and five are wholly unaware of, of, of the existence of other people's minds. And so everything is perceived as though it's an extension of the entire world is a sort of an extension of the child's mind or world. And he doesn't imagine that other people have independent acti- you know, active minds of their own. Child children don't understand this concept. It's something they have to graduate up to learning. And somewhere, like I said, between the theory, according to the way the theory goes, uh, somewhere between the ages of three and five, that sort of clicks, and they go, "Oh, whoa!" And it's sort of this dawning sort of realization, um, as well it should be, because you suddenly realize that you are not the entirety of the world. And I'm not saying Hubbard, you know, um, didn't have this realization. I think everybody, you know, sort of has it. Uh, my point is that um, that there seems to be a, um, an inability somewhere in that logic train. Some kind of connection isn't being made when you have an inability to empathize or, you know, tolerate the differences of others or have compassion for somebody who is suffering or, or, or in a situation that you should be able to at least, you know, gather some idea of, of what they're feeling um, and, you know, have sympathy, support, understanding, you know, these, these kinds of things. Somehow that, that, that series of, of mental you know, accomplishments, um, breaks down for people like Hubbard. And they don't have compassion in the same way for other people that I think you're, you know, again, coming to this dangerous idea of average person, your normal human being, right? We do see certain characteristics that obviously the majority of human beings seem to demonstrate, and empathy and compassion are are two of those qualities or characteristics. But we see a certain percentage of people who don't seem to be able to do that or seem to be faking it. Uh, they learn it's learned behavior. They learn what it looks like, and they sort of follow along with the mouthing the words and making the motions. But it's not really there. Uh, you know, in their in their in their head, they're not quite totally getting it. So I think that's where Hubbard was. So I think he was a he was a conflicted individual who had his own issues and problems that he was very aware of, and he knew that he wasn't going to be able to solve them by himself. He came to the place or realization somewhere in the '40s, certainly after the war, that he was pretty screwed up. Um, according to, this is all, you know, according to the information we have in his own writings through the affirmations, um, as well as the other things that he has said over the years. And, and so you have this man who is conflicted, who is, who has physical problems, mental problems, emotional issues, knows he has those problems, knows that his interactions or relationships with other people have not resolved those issues, but somehow, he wants to, and he wants to gain control and power over other people. That is a foundational uh, motivation that L. Ron Hubbard had, again, according to his own writings. And, um, he, you know, making men into slaves was something he wrote, wrote as a goal. Um, and this inability to empathize or have full, real compassion for, and that we get through his writings also. Elrond Hubbard specifically wrote that sympathy was the last possible, least possible thing 
you could do for somebody. If you couldn't do anything else effective or useful for them, you could sympathize with them. Indicating to me that he really was missing the boat on why sympathy or sympathizing or having compassion or uh, empathy for somebody else is actually the first thing you have to do before you can really help them. And Hubbard, like David Miscavige, tried to replace that with impersonal methods and guidelines and techniques and, and processes and procedures, and he thought that those would be the worthy substitute. And if you simply run these processes and procedures, people will just naturally get better. And the only time Scientology ever really worked on somebody is when the auditor actually cared about the person in front of them and listened intently and carefully to them as a human being first and a Scientologist second. And that's why I say that Scientology really only works um, on other people, you know, and, and, and the help that I received in Scientology or gave to other people in Scientology was really despite Scientology, not because of it. Okay, so anyway, I thought I'd hit, hit these points here in answering this question. I hope that this was a useful answer and informative, so there you go. Kevin Zay, in your opinion, is the QAnon movement becoming a bona fide cult? Someone who I was good friends with a while back chose to break off communications with me over my questioning some of the claims that have been made by those who consider themselves members. Hey, Kevin, thanks for the question. And yes, I do believe that we have the makings of a destructive cult in the QAnon movement. Now, I have not done a deep dive on QAnon. I've actually kind of avoided doing that and have only commented irregular, you know, infrequently about it because I lob it as just another conspiracy theory. And obviously, the it's sort of the, you know, uh, vogue in vogue conspiracy theory of the day uh, amongst us, you know, in the political world. And this is where we get, by the way, political cults. We've seen cults around, cults of personality around politicians, but you also can get these culty group, you know, sort of gatherings or collections or collectives around these political ideas. QAnon is not a religiously, as I understand it, is not based or centered around religious ideals. It is centered around the idea of the deep state and that um, Donald Trump is somehow a threat to this deep state and that this has been going on for a long time and, the, and there are, you know, there's pedophiles connected with this and this goes back to, I think, uh, connects in some way with Pizzagate. And depending on how deep down the rabbit hole you go, you're going to find different flavors of this. I guarantee you that you will. Uh, even without having done that, I, I've done enough deep dives down enough conspiracy rabbit holes that it really depends on who you're talking to as to what exactly the belief system is, how far does it go, who's involved exactly, and to what extent, what is Donald Trump doing about it, and how effective has he been. All of these questions will have different answers, you know, depending on who you're talking about from what area or whatever. That's just generally a true thing about conspiracy theories in general. There is no one overarching flat earth theory. There are, there are different ones. In fact, there's even infighting within the flat earth community about who is a valid or legit flat earther and who isn't. So I can't imagine it's a whole lot different in these other groups, too, by extension of how the groups are just basically formed and put together. Um, you mentioned, Kevin, that you had a friend of yours, a good friend, um, break off communications with you for being critical of it. That tends to indicate a mindset uh, that is, you know, fairly extreme, that's gone down that extremist rabbit hole. And um, they start feeling the need to separate themselves from others of, of different mindsets because they feel afraid of, um, you know, somebody popping their balloon, somebody poking a hole in their logic and, and breaking it all apart for them because the... The thing about conspiracy theories that I will that I'll put out here again is foundational to all of them is regardless of how the person came into it or why they think they believe it regardless of what they tell you or even what they tell themselves 
what you have in, in, a, in a very simple, not you know, almost reductionist uh, explanation here, is that you is that they is that the conspiracy theory, the belief set, fulfills an emotional need that this person has, and to the degree that it fulfills that emotional need is the degree to which they will commit and become loyal and and an ardent follower and a pusher and propagator of this belief set. So the more questions that it answers for them about confusing issues involving politics and the, and the various machines and machinations that are at play, the confusion of issues and, and criminality and, and corruption that they see mixed in with this, the uh, ineffectiveness of the system where it falls down or where it seems to get sabotaged. Why do all these things happen? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and they generally are not necessarily good reasons, or, um, but they're also not necessarily complicated reasons, nor are they necessarily involving conspiracies of people working together because they have nefarious ideas. Um, there could be lots and lots of reasons why things happen, including chance and coincidence. And I'm not saying that everything is chance and coincidence, not by a long shot. There have been many, many people over the decades in the um, central, um, well, sorry, in the intelligence community and in the executive branch and in the congressional branch who have engaged in some pretty nasty, nefarious, awful stuff if you look at it from an individual moral compass position. Here we're, And we can talk about the conspiracies that have been opened up or discovered or found out about, you know, the Tuskegee experiments, uh, Operation Paperclip, which I'll probably do some content on in the not-too-distant future because I'm fascinated by the ethical questions surrounding that particular conspiracy. And it was a conspiracy, and it was kept under wraps, and it was nefarious, Um and that happened. That's real. That's valid. That's verified. Same same thing with the MK Ultra um, experiments, of which there were hundreds. There were, I think, 120 different projects that fit under the umbrella of MK Ultra. So, it's not like there haven't been real government conspiracies where they've done things that were not great to the American population and to non-Americans and got away with it or tried to cover it up. So we know that these things are real. We even know now with Jeffrey Epstein that the pedophile accusations might not have been so off base after all. Now, does that mean that because that particular one fact happens to be true or we might be gathering evidence of its truth, that everything else connected with that conspiracy is true? Absolutely not. No, let's not go down any more logical fallacy roads by assuming that because one piece of this is true, all of it must be true. That's the same nonsense that people get involved with into cults from, like Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard says one thing that sounds good, and oh, well, all of Scientology must be true then, you know. So, okay, so getting to, you know, getting back to this QAnon thing, this is just sort of the latest you know, flavor of anti-government, deep state conspiratorial thinking. And uh, given the, um, you know, tremendous number of out-of-control factors at play right now with COVID, with politics, with the nonsense that's going on with the Postal Service right now, with the, uh, the reports of pedophilia and child sexual assault and uh, rape coming out of the Jeffrey Epstein documents and cases, um, you know, we've got good reason to think that there are, you know, people in Washington are up to some pretty, you know, crazy shenanigans. You throw on top of that uh, documents or documentaries like The Family, uh, which talk about the religious influences, the, the undue influence that religion is uh, holds in Washington, D.C. through the National Prayer Breakfast and through backdoor, you know, meetings and and other things that are going on with or with uh, evangelical, hardcore evangelical congressmen and women, I mean, you know, you got a lot of things at play, and and I've only listed a few out of the hundreds, thousands of factors that are at play every single day of the week in Washington D.C. and in our in our government, and then you had the military. I mean, 
you know? It's just circles within circles within circles within circles. It's just this endless array of, of complicated stuff. And QAnon uh, and other consp- like-minded conspiracy theories offer fairly simplistic explanations for these vastly complicated machines and um, and give people a way of looking at the world that somehow gives them um, satisfaction in that it gives them satisfactory answers to questions they have and and um, somehow assuages or um, or provides emotional needs that they have. you know and sometimes those emotional needs are not necessarily wrapped around just comfort or happiness or joy. sometimes, People, some people have an urgent need to be angry at something. Some people feel very, very sad all the time and don't have any idea why, and they want a causative agent for it. And a conspiracy theory of some kind can fill that need for them. And it can give also, it can also fill the void of purpose, of meaning, right? Um, they say for many, many years now that we lead lives of quiet desperation. And that is true at times for all of us. It's also true that we lead lives of quiet happiness and we lead lives of quiet grief and we lead lives of quiet anger. And sometimes we lead lives of very loud anger. (laughs) You know, I don't want to. I don't want these things to get uh, blown out of proportion. My point is that um, that we we have emotional needs, and these conspiracy theories, this QAnon stuff, can fill those needs. And with given also the one last factor I'll throw into this mix in terms of addressing your question here, Kevin, is we also have the issue of divisiveness that we've had decades now of very very divisive propaganda and rhetoric being thrown around at us. Um, directed very, very hard at us to get us fighting one another, to uh, divide and conquer the United States. Now, whether Russia is doing that, China is doing that, other countries are doing that, yes to all the above. And we're doing that to ourselves. And that's actually the most powerful of all of this, is the one is the, the divisive rhetoric and propaganda that we do to ourselves. We do it every four years during the presidential campaigns, actually every two years during the Senate races. We, we tar and feather uh, one another publicly and privately on social media, on public radio, on public access, on, on major news media. We talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and listen and listen and listen and listen to all the reasons why we should hate each other. And um, and through repetition and uh, repetition of message, repetition of tone, rep- you know, of emotion, um, you create changes in society. You move large groups of people in certain directions based on whatever buttons you're pressing or hitting with them. And that's how this stuff works, right? So QAnon is a way of doing that. It's a way of a specifically targeted message to specific targeted group of people, right, who just think that this is uh, the explanation that they have been looking for as to why the world is as crazy it is, why the government does what it does, etc. But we all have those needs in one fashion or another. And so I guess I'm sort of taking advantage of you asking me this question to point out that this is why, with everything I've just said, I'm trying to paint the picture here that we all buy into our little slice of the world view of how we're going to look at things based on a lot on the propaganda that we put in front of our faces, that we listen to, and the echo chambers that we put ourselves in. And this is why the critical thinking is um, is so important for all of us, not just the conspiracy guys. It's important for all of us to pay a lot of attention to the ideas that we buy into before we file them away and accept them as true. It's really important. So anyway, Kevin, thanks for giving me that opportunity to ramble about all of that. And uh, I hope that was an interesting answer for you. Cyprian Ivanov, 
Are there Scientologists who are suspicious of the chiropractors and other pseudo-medicine people in the group? Is it considered appropriate to be skeptical of chiropractors within Scientology? Hey, great question. Um, and yes, it is. It's okay in the world of Scientology to be critical of chiropractors, push back against it. Um, you probably are going to be the kind of person, if you're a Scientologist who doesn't really go into pseudoscience or pseudomedicine, you're probably going to be the kind of person who's going to be quiet about it, though, because you're not going to get a lot of agreement. Amongst all the Scientologists I knew, chiropractic was an accepted medicine form. It was valid. There were a lot of chiropractors who were Scientologists, as well as some dentists. Um, I would say more chiropractors than dentists and more dentists than medical doctors is kind of how I saw it. But I didn't do a census on that, so I can't be sure that that's how it actually breaks down. But when I look back on it, that's what I remember. And um, all of them, of course, gotten into Scientology, almost all of them gotten in through WISE, the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises, where Scientology, as a Scientology front group, they offer these doctors, chiropractors, uh, medical professionals, even vets, a way of um, learning how to run their office and run their organization so that they can do their practice and, and practice their medicine. Excuse me. Um, but uh, and here's this nice, simple Hubbard system for you to use, and that's how they get in. Okay, so generally speaking, within the world of Scientology, alternative medication or alternative medicine is medicine. And they treat, they, they use that, or they'll, different Scientologists will use different flavors of, you know, holistic healing, I guess you could say. But as long as it doesn't cross the line into becoming another spiritual practice, it has to be just body-based, right? It has to be dealing with the body directly, not the spirit. That's why Scientologists are not going to go in for Reiki or any kind of energy flow stuff. And I did see Scientologists get into using magnets and I saw the church actually push back on that and say, no, 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 no. We are not doing any of that. Um, we're not going to have anybody messing with their electrical fields or anything like that kind of stuff. Um, now, that was just once. And I'm, I'm, I'm pulling that out of a deep memory. But I believe that, that, was, that that's valid, I, that, that that was uh, forbidden to do, right? You weren't supposed to be, you know, messing with your energy flows particularly, or your spiritual self. You're not supposed to be doing anything other than Scientology practices, okay? So that's why all the assists and the fact that there are so many assists and Scientologists will use them on one another. Um, so, so that's how they're supposed to be managing their energy flows or dealing with the spirit in relation to the body is through Scientology auditing and assists. But when it comes to physical medicine, you know, taking strange concoctions of herbs and brews, even homeopathic remedies would be okay because those are considered physical-only kind of remedies, even though there's really nothing to the quote-unquote science of homeopathy. It's a complete joke. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of a little bit more about the attitude about that. And I'm sure, of course, you saw my... Um, my podcast about uh, medicine and how Scientologists deal with and, and think about medicine. So, um, so yeah, it is considered appropriate to be skeptical of chiropractors, but at the same time, there's so many chiropractors, I think people would, it would become an awkward conversation. You know, people would be like, oh, okay, well, you're free to think whatever you want, but I like my chiropractor, so... You know, it'd be one of those kind of conversations, right? So, uh, anyway, there you go. DA, I know that the Freewinds ship is the only place you can do OT8. Is it docked while you're on the ship, or are you traveling somewhere? Is there any relevance to being on water? Also, wouldn't the staff realize, hmm, there's only like five people doing OT8 a year? Okay, good question, DA. Um, so the free winds sails around the ABC Islands um, down in the um, uh, Caribbean zone there. Sorry, I always get those confused. I, I, anyway, so you have Aruba, um, 
uh, what is it, Curacao and uh, Barbados, right? The ABC Islands. And that's where the free wind sort of triangulates its uh, journeys. And yes, sometimes it is docked when it is in for repairs or, um, you know, some kind of renovation or overhaul or something like that. They've done that a couple times over the years. And they have continued to run services while the ship was in dry dock. But... Um, for the most part, it's out on the water. And the reasoning given for why the ship was purchased and utilized to deliver the highest OT levels, OT8 was supposed to be the first of you know many, is um, because apparently Hubbard said that you, in order to deliver this highest level, you have to be off the crossroads of the world and off in some uninterbulated, calm, chill space to just do the work and get it done. And it's not even a very long action getting through OT8. Um, you know, a couple weeks, I think. And uh, and then you go home. So, And you do class work and stuff as well at the same time. So that is, um, that's the relevance to it being on the water. It's supposed to be off the crossroads of the world. Now, um, I honestly wonder, I really do, I wonder if, if Miscavige didn't just make all of that up. Um, in order to have a ship out there in international waters, which I think gives them the ability to move money and do a few other things, disappear people as well, that they wouldn't have the the ability or advantage to, to do just with land-based operations, right? Because after the Sea Org landed in Clearwater in 76 or 77, yeah, I think it was 75 actually is when they actually officially landed, 75 or 76. Anyway, when they came to shore... They sold off all the boats. They didn't have any more boats or anything. So there was no more Scientology presence on the water. I mean, I think they had a training vessel over in L.A. that was permanently docked in L.A. Harbor. Um, but that was it. And they weren't out sailing around anymore. And so I think by the 80s, especially with the tax problems and the IRS war and everything that was going hot and heavy, and also Hubbard having died in 86, I mean, you know, he was off in hiding. I think Miscavige was kind of looking at this and going, you know, there were some advantages to us having a presence out in international waters where we could put things and people and stuff like that and not have to think about them or deal with them anymore. And they are away from the long arm of the law to some degree out there, right? So I think I think that is part of the calculus for why the ship was purchased, or at least something I've wondered about uh, in regards to all of this. As far as the staff, you know, looking at how few people there are there, the honest, honestly, what ends up, you got to get the mindset, okay? This is, this is, I, 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 you got to get the mindset. Uh, when you're in a cult, and especially in the Church of Scientology as a Sea Org member, if something's not going right, it's your fault. I really don't know how many times I can say this and really get it across. It's your fault. And you believe it's your fault. <laughs> so if there were only eight people or five people doing OT8, guess whose fault that is? For the people on the ship? It's their fault. They're not working hard enough or fast enough or on the right target, you know, with enough intention to get those OTs out there on up the bridge and up to OT8. And this is why they do seminars and conventions and try to fill the void with other services to keep the ship afloat and pay for itself, but also because they, in their mind... Getting people to the ship is a way of getting them pushed up the line to OT8 so they'll come back to the ship for the OT8 level. So it's always on them. It's always on their shoulders, right? So that's how they look at that situation. It's only when you start busting out of that mindset which takes, you know, a, a personal betrayal of some kind or a personal impact of some kind to bust through that, that prison of belief. Um, you know, it's all it, when you do start thinking, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's only five people here doing OTA. What are we doing here? That's disaffection, right? That's you being disaffected because Scientology is perfect 
And if it's not working, it's because you're not making it work. And that's what you'll be told very forcefully and repeatedly as a Scientologist and as a Sea Org member. So that's the mindset they're in. So I really want to just emphasize that again because I get these questions about, you know, wouldn't staff realize? No, they wouldn't. That's the whole point of being in a destructive cult is they don't realize it. Not until the church, and let me be clear about this, okay, because of, of course people do wake up to it, but the reason they wake up to it is because something happens to them personally that they go, oh, wait a minute, you know, and they get, uh, there's a betrayal, there's a lie that they, that, that they discover, or something bad happens to them, they get abused a little bit too much, and they start going, hang on, something's not right here, you know, but it has to have that personal impact before they'll start waking up and looking around and realizing that there is something wrong. They don't just do it on their own. You know, that's what I wanted to stress about that. So anyway, thanks for asking that question. Blake Nestle. Perhaps you've seen the recent news about Patreon and the lawsuit they've recently lost involving removal of accounts not violating their terms of service, then attempting to alter their terms of service to avoid the very lawsuit they just found themselves in. Cutting through the legalese, the result of this lawsuit seems to open Patreon up to having to pay the arbitration costs of any patrons of these unjustly removed persons that pursue a complaint. Some of these people were just intellectually honest creators who transgressed the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, religious beliefs, Patreon espouses in their operational behavior. Owen Benjamin, Sargon, Others were provocateurs who, while I don't agree with what they have to say, I'd still fight to the death for their right to say it. Lauren Southern, Milo Yannanopoulos. With each arbitration costing somewhere around $10,000, one could easily see uh, Patreon could be bankrupted if even a small portion of these people's fan bases decide to act. I am one of these people who could do so, yet because of creators like you, I find myself pausing for now. In addition to admiring your life story, I find the content you make exceptional and the effort you input into these works is clear for all to see. I do not want to see you or any similarly driven creators lose a revenue source. Yet on the other hand, I find the operational ethos of Patreon to be dogmatic and mob placating and the attitudes expressed by their corporate officers to have the air of, fuck you, got mine. I do not like that up until now they operated with seeming impunity when it came to removing creators they disagreed with, and I would be more than willing to expend the effort to financially punish them if it meant they would be compelled to follow their own guidelines and operate in a manner consistent with the values they claim to possess. And yet, this action, if undertaken by enough people, has the power not to alter the platform, but destroy it. While watching the smugness fade from Jack Conti's face as his own behavior brings about the ending of the company he helped build, would bring me some satisfaction, that feeling would be tainted knowing it wouldn't be just Jack losing something. Every one of the multitude of good creators on the platform would be forced to migrate elsewhere, and while there are alternatives available, it's observable fact that such migration has a cost in both lost revenue and diminished follower slash subscriber count. I do not wish this to befall you, yet nothing changes if nothing changes. What are your thoughts on this matter? the lawsuit, the potential ramifications, and the potential ending of Patreon. How do I rectify my disdain for Patreon with my love of some of its creators, yourself most certainly included? All right, Blake, thanks for the question. And here we are again with platform versus principle. Uh, The never-ending saga, really, Um, because I've had, of course, very similar rants and and upsets about uh, YouTube and I have had my own, you know, problems with Patreon and PayPal and any other, you know, place where money seems to come always seems to have some degree of controversy connected with it. And I don't know that that's ever not going to be that way. It seems to me that there is always something for people to find fault with when it comes to ways that we as creators out here are trying to make a living. And... um 
And I'm not going to sit here and like, you know, go on some rant or or get really super upset about this. But I am going to say that, you know, it has really blown me away. Some of the things that people have thought were okay to say to me uh, or that they thought were like even logical thoughts along the lines of, you know, how dare I monetize my channel? How dare I try to make a living with activism? How dare, you know, like as though this is, they have some, there's some false ideal that you have to martyr yourself because if you don't, then you're not a good activist. Well, (laughs) I martyred myself for 27 years. I did my time. I don't need anybody telling me how to do what I'm going to do with my life anymore and uh, how I'm going to go about making money. Well, this is what I'm doing. I'm providing content, and I'm trying to do as good a job as I know how to do to get people thinking, to give people information, to provide food for thought, to provide some you know, help with critical thinking, and that sort of thing. So uh, obviously, you know, you, you touched on a little thing here, so I'm going to just try to say all that at the beginning because I feel that I've never really you know, addressed this or talked about it very much, and it is obviously uh, important to me because this is my living. What you see me doing here in front of this camera many times a week, in fact, seven days a week I post content, is my living. This is my job, right? So I am a little touchy about it when people start telling me what I can and can't do in order to make a living or what I should and shouldn't do, right? As though they have, you know, some right to judge how I live my life. All right. All of that being said... I need Patreon to be a platform that works for me because I don't see migrating somewhere else. I have built up a base here of support that is wonderful, that is affording me the freedom and ability to be able to talk to you guys the way that I do. And um, and I don't know another place I can go where I could set that kind of thing up. That was the unique thing about Patreon. It was a service for creators that wasn't being provided any other way. YouTube now has membership tiers based very much on what Patreon was doing. YouTube just ripped off their model and decided to implement it there. I decided not to go with that with that because I already had Patreon set up. Why would I set up its own, you know, another way of doing that when Patreon serves the purpose? And PayPal of course is good for one-offs. So I didn't know anything about this lawsuit or what was happening with that until you actually asked me this question about it. And I went, oh, that's interesting. Unfortunate. And I understand why PayPal or, sorry, Patreon would um, change their terms of service to be less legally you know, liable or exposed. That really kind of makes sense. I don't see something hypocritical there. But the platform versus principle thing is really what I think, and to get to to the specifics of your question now that I've ranted a little bit, um, the uh, private platforms are just that. They are private platforms. They are services that are being provided. YouTube is a service that Google provides free of service. Now Google provides it. It used to be that it was just YouTube. In order that you can upload your videos and show them to the world. And you know, if you if you look at it from the platform's point of view, right? Would you want to host a uh, uh, you know, a platform that has video content on it glorifying Nazis or child rape? Or, um, you know, that, that society of grown men who, who really dig little kids, right? Stuff like that. Would you want to promote that? You know, and this is where the principle comes in. And, um, and then the business side of it, of course, comes in with, would advertisers be okay with being on your channel if you, or being on your platform and advertising their products there if this platform was friendly to, in other words, was allowing uh, neo-Nazis, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to post content. Um, It's a tough question, right? Because that becomes uh, a business question, really, more than a question of morality or principle. It becomes a question of straight-up business, 
what is the what's the attitude of the majority of the population that is going to take part in this service towards the content on this platform and if the majority of people look at that content and go nope i don't want to have anything to do with that I'm not going to be on that platform, I'm not going to have anything to do with that platform, then advertisers are not going to go there and you're not going to have a platform based on the advertiser model, which is how the internet was basically built. It was certainly Google and YouTube with the advertising model. So the revenue comes from the advertisers rather than coming from us in paying membership fees and dues. So of course now it's changing where now they're charging us for crap too. So now it's now the model is sort of shifting. Um, but again, it comes down to this sort of really kind of democratic voting with your pocketbook or voting with your views or your clicks. How popular is your platform going to become? Well, if the majority of people are like, nope, I'm not okay with that, I'm not okay with that, I'm not okay with that, then you are limiting your platform by hosting that kind of content. I mean, this is pretty, I mean, I know you guys know this stuff, but I'm laying it out like this to kind of show the bare bones simplicity of this problem, that the problem is not actually for as far as the companies are concerned, not as far as I'm concerned or you're concerned, we get to decide on a whim whether we do or don't want to support a platform. The platform has a lot more intensive calculus going on as far as how they're computing what is and isn't allowable on their platform. Now, I find myself sitting here sort of engaging in what could be considered apologia for somebody, you know, for a a company like YouTube. Um, It's just the reality of the situation. It's not a matter of I want to defend YouTube or I want to defend Patreon for the decisions they make that I may or may not agree with, I'm just pointing out the, the the things that go into their calculus and these principles of free speech and that we should have a platform that is open to everybody to say anything they want. That's not a very realistic standard to hold any public platform that depends on advertisements. Advertisement. It's not very realistic that you're going to be able to do that because the factors at play and the pressures that can be brought to bear against those platforms involve public pressure campaigns, public PR campaigns, you know, the call-out culture, that sort of thing. Uh, Boycotting, basically, is really what it comes down to. We have all these other terms we throw at this stuff now, but really it's just boycotting. And boycotting is the way that consumers have been able to push back and vote, like I said, with their pocketbooks or with their feet against something that they don't like. And companies hate, hate bad PR. They hate counter campaigns. They hate bad, you know, they hate it when when the, when the a, when a certain percentage of the public starts riling up, rising up against them, right? They don't wanna, they don't want that. It's controversy, it's attention, that it's negative attention, it puts them in a bad light. You know, they don't want anything to do with that. So all they're trying to do at the end of the day is maximize the money that they are making from this thing. And when it came to Patreon, that involved um, how many creators, the, 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 the logic or the calculus they had to do involved questions like, how many creators are we going to lose and that means that means directly how much income are we going to lose as a service provider here if we allow certain content creators who say extremely controversial stuff to stay on this platform making money when there's a whole bunch of people here who are telling us they're leaving they're jumping ship if we keep this here so again it becomes if that's the way that the calculus is done and i believe that it is and if I'm wrong about that, and if there are other factors entering into this, you know, these computations that the corporate executives and the CFOs and the accounting departments are making, if I'm wrong about that, then I'm certainly willing to be corrected. But I believe that these that the that the decision-making processes are based on bottom line and are based on the feedback that the company is receiving from its users and non-users alike. And because uh, there, you, I suppose, you would have the content creators and the people who are supporting them, the people who have signed up with Patreon and are paying, paying their money. 
people like you, Blake, they listen to those people and they go, well, we got 10 people who are telling us that, you know, First Amendment is the most important thing and everybody should be able to say anything they want about anything, no matter what. And then you have a, maybe 100 people, and I believe that this is probably how it worked out, who are saying, look, if, these guys, if you're going to have these guys on this platform saying this stuff, they have the right to say it. Nobody has taken away Sargon or Milo or anybody's right to say anything. If they're going to be taking advantage of this platform to say those things, then we are not going to be. And we are going to go take our business somewhere else. And if it's 10 to 100, then then democratically, you've got a situation there, right? Again, majority, obviously, is my point there. Really, for real, for real democracy, you'd have to, you know, do a vote and get everybody to, to chime in. But, but when you have 100 complaints versus, you know, 10 complaints, clearly, logically, you're going to go with the 100, you know? That's kind of how that's how I think those decisions are made. And I understand those decisions and I and I can agree with that decision making process. You know, uh, beyond the principle of the thing because the truth is, if we're really really going to be honest about freedom of speech, the, the absolute truth is that there is nowhere in the world outside of your own home where you can go and say anything you want on anything, on any topic, anywhere. You can say whatever words you want. You can say whatever hate speech you want. You can say whatever combination of words pleases you. The only place you really get to do that unfettered is in your own home. And that's, of course, whether if the other people in your home are okay with you doing that. You cannot go to a restaurant. You cannot go to any public venue. You cannot go to other people's homes. You cannot go to any business. You cannot go to any sporting event. You cannot go to any movie theater. Uh, You certainly cannot go to any place of employment and say whatever you want and not face consequences for, for having said those things. There will always be consequences. And really, the question isn't, do we or don't we have the ability to say whatever we want? It's, where do we draw the line? You know, because there's always a line. Now, that line changes with context. Where you go, who you're with, what they find acceptable, unacceptable, etc. The purpose of the meeting or the purpose of reading for the gathering You know, these all play into what you are allowed and not allowed to say. We all know this is true. This is is not some, like, you know, bizarre piece of minutia I'm saying right now. But the point that I'm going with there, where I'm driving to, is we all accept limitations on what we, on our right to say whatever we want. We all accept those limitations, cultural limitations, manners, etiquette, social conventions. I mean, even those are limitations on our free speech. But, you know, how much do we fight back and push back against those things? How much do we put that free speech absolutism principle into play, really? And what is it we're so desperate to say anyway that's so socially, you know, unacceptable that we feel this need to go shout it from the rooftops, you know? I mean, what are we really discussing here? What are we really talking about? If you want to talk about controversial ideas that go against the grain, there are going to be consequences. And if you do it in such a way as to be as to come across like a complete asshat, and the examples that you gave, Sargon, Milo, that's what they do. They are edge lords. They do it on purpose. They purposefully, it's their brand to rile up people, to piss them off, to antagonize them, to call them names, to call them out, to, you know, to be controversial. And then when they become controversial by design, right, then they blame everything around them except themselves for what's happened to them. When they knew 
that those that this was you know de- being deplatformed was a potential consequence of their actions, and they did it anyway. And we're not talking about people of the stature of a Martin Luther King. Let's be clear that you know the intent of Milo Yiannopoulos, as I mentioned in an earlier answer in this episode here, actually, intent matters. You know what is what is what what is Sargon's intent? Well, I think the guy wants a better world, but I, honestly, the way he talks to people sometimes, I can't tell. You know, Milo, the guy is the most self-centered prick I've ever seen, right? I mean, this guy, he's just he's just a total asshat. By design and on purpose. That's his brand. He created that image for himself. So, you know, so I so it's a little hard for me when I look at that kind of personality that is purposefully creating drama for the sake of attention and clicks and money. It's a little hard for me to look at that and go, oh, boy, I really feel sorry for those guys for getting exactly what they were pretty much asking for. Now, I got to be careful, of course, in saying that because I know that's not all people like Sargon are about. But, you know, again, I will stick with my guns on this that, you know, when you put yourself out there as an edgelord, and again, I definitely believe that's what those guys are doing. Um, then you're going to have to face the consequences of that, you know. And I think they might have been a little surprised at how much pushback there was. Well, you know, they should look at the words they said and the fun that they had doing it. I mean, Milo was having a grand old time, uh, right up into the point that he was causing riots, you know. And uh, that was fun, you know. Now, of course, I'm actually on Milo's side when it came to that whole Berkeley riot thing. So, um, but at the same time, you know... there's a way to make points. There's a way to, to talk about things without having to create those kind of effects. And uh, that is something we can look at if we're going to be honest about this whole picture of deplatforming and cancel culture and stuff. Is We also have to look at the actions of these individuals. I just did a whole thing on cancel culture. You know I'm not down with that stuff. But at the same time, Controversial figures purposefully being controversial and then generating controversy. Surprise, right? Like what's what's the what's the thing there, right? Um, so okay, so again, platform versus principle. I I think I've explained where I'm coming from on this. Uh, I'm certainly willing to have more conversation about it or um, or more questioning about this. You know, this is a fluid thing for me. This is not like set in stone. I'm not like totally rigid on all these things I'm saying. I'm just telling you what's on my mind right now as I contemplate this question. It's a tough one. This is a tough issue. Freedom of speech versus, you know, um, the consequences of freedom of speech. Anyway, so I hope this uh, informed a little bit, gave you some food for thought, something to think about. And thanks for asking. All right, let us do some flash answers. Enzo. Scientology warns that reading the Xenu story without proper authorization could cause pneumonia. Are there Scientologists who believe that all this COVID-19 mess is caused by the Xenu story being now public? Uh, No, I'm not aware of any Scientologists who think that uh, or would think that. Uh, I think the justifications around the the Xenu story coming out and not causing mass pneumonia are a little deeper than that. Um, I could go into detail about it at some point maybe, but it doesn't, but for a flash answer, no, I don't think that has anything to do with how Scientologists are thinking about this. Jane Smith, does the Sea Org slash Freewinds cater at all to different diet lifestyles? I don't mean simply like vegetarian slash vegan, but other things like diabetes or gluten slash lactose intolerance. The list goes on, but I think you understand my point. Yes, as far as I know, they do definitely cater to those uh, different tastes. The whole idea with the free winds is that it is a distraction-free environment. And every single person I ever talked to, public and staff and even Sea Org, who went to the free winds said that the food there was the best food anywhere in the Sea Org, in Scientology, they were over the top amazed at the food catering services of the free ones. So, 
I guess that's a thing there. Dr. Robert Tobias. Given this Church of Scientology's documented fair game policy on enemies, how do you think Mark Bunker will be removed from the downtown Clearwater Development Board? Well, they're already trying as best they can to get the guy off and uh, off of there, and they can't. They're powerless. You know, uh, Mark Bunker's a pretty smart guy, and uh, I don't think he's going to get fair gamed off of there. Um, I think if they had any dirt on him, they would have used it during the campaign. They don't because he's not a dirty, corrupt man. And um, I think that the, you see, the whole thing with fair game is it's basically blackmail and harassment and intimidation. And Mark Bunker can't be blackmailed. He can't be harassed out of existence. He's already proven that. And he's not, he doesn't care about your harassment, Scientology. He's just going to get his job done. And uh, that's who Mark Bunker is. So I don't think that, uh, that, he's, that they are capable of fair gaming that guy off the development board or off the city council. All right, that is our show for this week, folks. Thanks for coming around and listening to me ramble on like this. It's been over an hour. I think we had a pretty good show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed my answers. Uh, Certainly, I hope food for thought, if nothing else. And uh, I hope that with all that talk about Patreon and everything, that you guys will consider supporting me through Patreon or through a uh, one-off, of course, through PayPal. Or you can, of course, even sign up for recurring donations through PayPal if uh, you don't want to use Patreon or anything else. All right, guys, this has been a lot of fun, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.